It's Friday night. What places are you heading to for post-work happy hour? Tell us. This podcast is making a best of the best list and needs recommendation for happy hour menus at restaurants in KC. Text us at 816-601-4777. That's 816-601-4777. Standard texting rates apply. UpToDate wants to know what you're talking about with family and friends. You can text UTD to 816-601-4777 to tell us. Again, 816-601-4777. This is UpToDate on KCUR 89.3. In his new book on indigenuity, Learning the Lessons of Mother Earth, Author Daniel Wildcat explores how ancient indigenous knowledge can be used to solve many of today's most urgent issues, like climate change. The book draws on history, personal experiences, and extensive research, and asks readers to consider indigenous wisdom as central to the well-being of the earth and all of its beings. Wildcat is a Yuchi member of the Muscogee Nation of Oklahoma and a professor at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, and he's here to tell us about his book. Dan, welcome. So good to have you here in the studio. Well, thank you for having me. Well, let's start with the word indigenuity. What does it mean? Yeah, basically it's putting indigenous and ingenuity together, collapsing it, indigenuity. And the idea here was- It's a to, word you've made up. Uh, well, it was a, I first heard it. I don't think, okay. I don't know who actually gets credit for developing the term. I've been using it now for about- uh, Oh, 16, 17 years trying to unpack it. I first heard it on my campus when some uh, student and a faculty member were doing an exercise, and they said they were trying to figure out how to create in English some words that would capture ancient ideas, and they came up with this idea. They used this term, indigenuity, indigenous ingenuity, first time I heard it, and um I kind of explored to see if other people were using it. I found some people in First Nations in Canada Mm -hmm. that were using it. So I don't know who gets credit for it, but I've been exploring the idea now for, uh, well, ever since then, about 2004, 2005. You know, one of the central issues of uh, points of your book, Dan, is that you believe the most important voices of this century will be indigenous voices. I do. Why do you feel that way? I say that because these are people who never thought in boxes. They never worked in silos. Most of their knowledge was very deeply place-based, spatially-based, experiential knowledge. It was deep empirical knowledge, knowledge about the land, the air, the water, the place where they lived. I think that's what we desperately need in the modern world today because we're kind of programmed to think in a very modern way about kind of one-size-fits-all solutions. And what we know, one of the difficulties about understanding climate change and a lot of environmental issues we face is the way they express themselves is particular to the place where you're experiencing it. The desert Southwest is going to experience climate change very different than my relatives down on the Louisiana coast or mm-hmm. Puerto Rico or Hawaii. And so I think that idea of indigenous, a place-centered kind of knowledge, deep spatial knowledge, hundreds, sometimes thousands of years old, is exactly what we need today. You know, it's interesting to me the timing of this book on indigenuity because it seems to me that society today, American society at least, maybe is more open to this message than it's been in a long, long time. What do you think? I think it has been. I, I think it is. And, and here's why. I think climate change has really challenged uh, 
the scientific world to how do you understand something that is a global phenomenon? We can't study this or solve it by putting it in an experimental box. Can't do it. We're talking about the entire planet. So uh, I think what's happened is scientists have recognized that they're going to need different knowledges to understand the social knowledges, ecological knowledges, yes, atmospheric scientific knowledges. So I have seen scientists in NASA, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, all sort of opening the doors to indigenous people, people who don't have letters after their names, not PhD, you right. know, to hear what they could share with them about the places they lived and the kind of knowledge they had acquired over those hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. And I think that is indeed a door that is opening. And I think indigenous people are ready to find ways to work in a respectful, responsible, and honest way with those scientists. I mean, it's almost like indigenous folks are having a moment here that yeah. I haven't seen before, at least maybe in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think you're right. I think, I th and there are a lot of reasons for that in the culture and everything. Of course, right now everyone's talking about, you know, the Scorsese movie and right. the, the Osage murders and, and all of that. And so you, you kind of have these, these things in popular culture where kind of something catches people's attention. I think this goes deeper than that. I've been working on climate change, this interface between climate change and indigenous peoples now for about uh, almost two decades. And what I began to notice uh, after my earlier book, I did a book in 2009 called Red Alert, Saving the Planet with Indigenous Knowledge. I started getting invitations to NASA, Goddard Space Flight Center, to hmm. NOAA, to major scientific organizations, and that has only stepped up over the last, uh, well, really since COVID. I mean, I think there's really been a growing awareness by uh, international and national scientific organizations and institutions that, hey, we need a to develop a good discussion here with indigenous people. Daniel Wildcat is my guest. His new book on indigenuity, learning the lessons of Mother Earth. You know, in Western influence society, Dan, there tends to be this division, I guess, in thought between indigenous knowledge and scientific knowledge. Right. Is that fair to say? I think it is. And I, I think it's uh, a miseducative kind of way of thinking about things. Uh, you know, so part of my book, one of the major themes of my book is we've got to move move away from these kind of binary, dichotomous ways mm -hmm. of either or black and white thinking. And that's why I think indigenous worldviews, which are deeply relational, uh, deeply relational. Uh, I start, you know, my book by emphasizing this fact that most people in the modern world think of us living in a world full of resources. In my Zoyaha, my Yuchi traditions, we would say, no, we live in a world full of relatives. We actually honor the plants, the animals, the earth, the water as relatives. In fact, modern science seems to be moving that direction uh, with this, uh, what we now know, you know, about evolution and the way in which most life on the planet, we are all related. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. um, I think that that is really uh, an incredible opportunity to explore. So I'm making the argument in this book that part of what we need today 
is to take the opportunity to hear what indigenous people knew, because so much of our past history was this dichotomizing, civilized versus savage, uh, modern right. versus primitive. Right. And I think that hurts us, actually. This relationship idea that you mentioned goes back centuries with Native oh, Americans. And, and yet our society, you know, maybe going back 50, 60 years, suddenly is saying, hey, we all are interconnected. Yeah, yeah. You guys have been saying it forever. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it matters. It matters. I mean, if you think about it, think about the difference between uh, we live in the age of the Anthropocene. That's what, you know, deep earth scientists are telling us. We live in the age of humans. So far, the age of humans has not been so good for the balance of the other life on this planet. I think one of the advantages of indigenuity, drawing on this ancient wisdom, is if I were going to make a general, generalized statement, I'd say one place to begin would be that the vast majority of indigenous people on the planet <clears throat> could never think anthropocentrically that is the most foreign idea that it's all about us, that somehow we're at the center of creation. Instead, our worldviews emphasize that we are just one part of a very complex web of interconnected, interrelated life. I think that's the kind of thinking we need today. Well, what is the Anthropocene? Tell me more yeah, about that. Yeah, so... Um, this idea of the Anthropocene or Anthropocene is the idea that, you know, we talk about, you know, the Miocene, the Jurassic period. We have all these geologic periods of time. There are some big picture earth scientists who have put forth this idea that saying we have actually entered a new age of earth history. And it's not the Jurassic, you know, it's not the Miocene, it's the Anthropocene. It's the age of humans. And their argument is basically that our activity has become so uh, prevalent and so uh, shaping of the life systems on the planet that we are literally entering into a new Earth age. And it's an age that has been shaped and defined by humankind. My response to that is, I think you're right. But I think the problem is that the cultures that have done all this shaping have actually done so often in a very damaging way. Uh, there's this apocryphal quote attributed to Einstein. I know you've heard it. Everyone has. Uh, no evidence Einstein ever said this, but <laughs> something to the effect that you can't solve problems with the same kind of thinking that created them. My argument is, you know, for all of our advancement, technology, and civilization, we always seem to create problems that we didn't foresee, you know, coming out of the applications of that technology. I think indigenous people have a different way of approaching it, which is saying, we're not looking at technology in isolation. We're looking at all of our human actions in the context of this whole balance of these deep relationships we are involved in. I think that's an... Um, ancient way. It's a new way for some people to think about in our society. I think that's exactly what we need today. We need to understand, you know, it's not all about us, but it's really about the ecosystems, the environments we live in. And I think that is a good place to begin. We'll be right back. 
To that end, you say the human beings can do or fix it attitude, Dan, can lead to tunnel vision. Yes. How so? Well, here's here's the problem with the Anthropocene. I think if you look at how we think about things, uh, you know, look at the space we're in now. This is a marvel of the kind of technology that humans, the programming we're doing, radio, TV, the media. And I think what has happened is um, we've sort of created an insulated ignorance. Our technology has kind of served to insulate us from the out of doors, from literally the earth we walk on, the air we breathe, the water we drink. Uh, Your grandparents, I bet, certainly your great-grandparents, lived in a way to where there's a lot of those things they did not take for granted. Are you going to have good water, clean water, drinkable water? Uh, We don't even think about it anymore. We pay a price for that because we're taking it for granted. I think what I'm arguing is we need to reconnect with the natural world in a very important experiential everyday way. Uh, yes, we're working in these very designed, technologically informed environments. That comes at a price. I want to know the weather. I Look at my phone app. Right. My grandparents, maternal grandparents, were, were small farmers, southeast Kansas farmers. They studied the weather. They knew the weather. They never had an app, but they could tell kind of what was happening, what was going to happen. That was what their life depended on. We don't live that way anymore. It's about time we started paying attention again because of what we're doing with our inattentiveness. You talk about sovereignty in an interesting way in this book. You say it's often considered in a legal context, but you present sovereignty in a different light, in a different way in this book. Describe that to me. Yes, I I've thought about this very deeply. I was very influenced by my, my dear friend and mentor and and co-author, the late Vine Deloria Jr., kind of the, the dean of indigenous studies in in the United States. But I I thought about this deeply, and and here's what I mean by that. I think there's an extra legal kind of uh, relationship when indigenous people think about their connection to the land. I make the argument that really from our original instructions, our oral traditions, often in many of our creation stories, we are essentially almost form a covenant between a place, our people and a place, and responsibility we have. And so my notion is is that I, that I'm sort of, you know, trying to think deeply about is I don't think Congress, I don't think the state of Kansas, state of Missouri, I don't think they are thinking of sovereignty in the same way we do. I think that sovereignty literally resides in the earth, in the relationships, a covenant, if you will, almost a sacred covenant we made between ourselves and those places, Mm -hmm. and that we would be respectful, we would take care of that land. We would take care of 
the plants and animals that resided there. And I don't think there's anything romantic about that. I, I call that indigenous realism. But I don't think we need courts to affirm that. It goes deeper than that. You talk about something called eco-kinship communities, yes. Dan, mm -hmm. and what role they play in our collective future. What role do they play? Well, right now, I don't think in the dominant society they're, they're playing an important role yet, but I think they could. I think the opportunity we have, and, and so I'm trying to be hopeful about our future and what looks, if you read the science, uh, increasingly scientists are painting a pretty bleak picture. Yep. My notion of it is, we live in this room full of mirrors kind of society. We're always looking at our technology. It's time for us to look out of doors again, make connections with places, make connections with the so-called natural world we are a part of. And I think there's deep wisdom there by sort of re rejoining those communities in an ecological kinship way that we are related, we are kin. And so far, back to the question about the Anthropocene, uh, we've been behaving pretty badly. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if the plants and the animals see, you know, humans moving in, I think they're saying, there goes the neighborhood, mm -hmm. there goes the family. Right, uh, right. We, we kind of behave like invasive species. So if you're talking, you know, a family listening in Overland Park to this conversation yeah. and you're talking about this, this imp the importance of reconnecting to the right. natural world, how do families do that? They're getting kids to school every oh, day. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, yeah. how do you recreate a new mindset that might establish what you're talking about? I think we've got to really look very carefully at, at uh the creation and the maintenance of green spaces within urban areas. This is a big topic, you know, and in fact, Johnson County is a good illustration of this. Think of all the biking and hiking trails yes. they've created. Down so there. it's happening yeah, in, its exactly. own, in its own yeah, way. Exactly. Yeah. And I think here's another thing to keep in, in mind. Although we live in a very technologically mediated and Im impacted environment right now, let's think right where we are on Troost in the, you know, 47, 4900 block. Right. If we step out of doors and walk around, we will still see trees, the earth, maybe some water running through the creek. Mm -hmm. I think we need to take seriously the fact that we should value those kinds of experiences in the heart of cities, in suburbs, and now think more intentionally about maybe creating new spaces where we would have communities or neighborhoods that were walkable. Yeah. Um, we've kind of laid out, Kansas City's a good example of this, of a, a landscape that's defined by roads and cars. Mm -hmm. And I think we've got an opportunity now to think about how could we design urban landscapes that were walkable again, yeah. where people could walk. Yeah. I think so many people agree completely that, hey, they, they do feel a connection when they have those moments. Exactly. They just don't have them often enough. They don't have them often enough. And, yeah. and that's just that mindfulness. So that's that change. That's, that, that's just changing your, your mindset to pay attention again to that. And, you know, when you do that, I think it, it has an, 
incredible benefit to us as human beings. So what can uh, um, non-Indigenous people do to begin to stop global climate change? What would you like to see happening beyond what you're suggesting here? I I would say, so let's talk about uh, our personal responsibility. So one, think about when you drive and where you drive. Now, again, I've just said, well, part of the problem is we've laid out a, a, a whole city where People kind of have to drive. Some places it's dangerous to walk. I mean, mm-hmm. there's some places I wouldn't want my granddaughter Tell to me walk, about it. you yeah. know, in mm-hmm. Kansas City because mm-hmm. of the traffic issues. Mm-hmm. But I think a mindfulness to this, a mindfulness to water, turn our water off. Maybe you don't wash your cars frequently as you 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 would like to. I think all these little things have a cumulative effect that are very important in changing a kind of mindset and attentiveness to this deep relationality I was talking about. Don't take your water for granted. Don't take your heating and your cooling for granted. And be very intentional about when you're going to drive and where you're going to drive. And I think all of these things, people would argue, well, those aren't really going to address climate change. Well, it may not be the big kind of impact we want, but you know, when children see that and grandchildren see that, it's, again, I would argue we can't address the physical climate change we're facing unless we have a cultural climate change. Yeah. I believe indigenous people hold wisdom that we ought to reexamine and take seriously about how we live in this world. Dan, before I lose you, you start the book with a list of truths that yes. you live life by. <laughs> yeah. Share some of those with us. Yeah. Well, one of those is the truth. Uh, None of us know at all. Um, I think that what we could value, uh, what, what we need more than anything, is to inculcate a kind of public humility uh, in politics and in governance and in, in, in that public sphere of life. Uh, none of us know at all. Mm-hmm. That means we desperately need to listen to what other people have. Right. We always we're always better if we hear more ideas, more voices than just one. I think that's important, and I think also I I really like this idea that you know we live in a world that is still has beauty to it. Now, it's true there's much ugliness in this world. But when you think about it, most of that ugliness is the result of one species. Mm-hmm. And I think something I've thought about a lot is let's try to restore uh, an awareness and think about the importance of trying to honor the beauty of this world in spite of all of this ugliness. We yeah. never want the ugliness that surrounds us to blind us to the beauty that's still there. That's a good point to end on. That's Daniel Wildcat, his new book on indigenuity, learning the lessons of Mother Earth. Great conversation, Dan. Thanks so much for coming in. Best of luck with the book. Thank you for having me. You bet. Yes. Up to Date is a production of KCUR 89.3. The program is produced by Zach Wilson, Elizabeth Ruiz, Claudia Brancard, and Hallie Jackson. Our intern is Elizabeth Erb. Paul Nakatura is our announcer and engineer. The theme music was composed by the great Bobby Watson. 
I'm Steve Kraske. Thanks for listening.